Greetings. This message is being given on September the 1st of 2014 on Monday, Labor Day, at approximately 5.41 p.m. Hello, my name is David Thompson. For those of you that are new, I just want to briefly mention that I am seeking to speak what the Holy Spirit is wanting to say each day to the body of Christ and to me personally. I am seeking to minister God's word as commanded by the Apostle Peter, if any man minister, let him speak as the oracles of God. In other words, we are to seek to let the Spirit of God speak out of us the words that are from God rather than our own words. And this comes out of a relationship, a fellowship with God that is a consciousness even as we are giving the message. It is out of that consciousness of worship that the Spirit of God speaks. As it says in Revelations, worship God for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. And so I am here to teach and to preach out of the Spirit of God this day. And as concerning that, I also seek to be led to a particular chapter each day of the week and then meditate on that chapter for a half an hour that includes taking some brief notes and immediately thereafter, I speak as I'm about to speak now. Today, I received through the casting of lots before God, Hosea chapter 2. So first, and chapter 3, actually, I decided that both of those should be read. Hosea chapter 2 and 3. I will read the passage first. Say ye unto your brethren, am I, and to your sisters, Rahumah, plead with your mother, plead, for she is not my wife. Neither am I her husband. Let her therefore put away her whoredoms out of her sight and her adulteries from between her breasts. Lest I strip her naked and set her as in the day that she was born and make her as a wilderness and set her like a dry land and slay her with thirst. And I will not have mercy upon her children for they be the children of whoredoms. For their mother hath played the harlot, she hath conceived them. She that conceived them hath done shamefully. For she said, I will go after my lovers, that give me my bread and my water, my wool and my flax, mine oil and my drink. Therefore, behold, I will hedge up thy way with thorns, and make a wall that she shall not find her paths. And she shall follow after her lovers, but she shall not overtake them. And she shall seek them, but shall not find them. Then shall she say, I will go and return to my first husband. For then was it better with me than now. For she did not know that I gave her corn and wine and oil and multiplied her silver and gold, which they prepared for Baal. Therefore will I return and take away my corn in the time thereof, and my wine in the season thereof, and will recover my wool and my flax given to cover her nakedness. And now will I discover her lewdness in the sight of her lovers, and none shall deliver her out of mine hand. I will also cause all her mirth to cease, and her feast days, her new moons and her sabbaths, and all her solemn feasts. And I will destroy her vines and her fig trees, whereof she hath said, These are my rewards that my lovers have given me. And I will make them a forest, and the beasts of the field shall eat them. And I will visit upon her the days of Balaam, wherein she burned incense to them, and she decked herself with her earrings and her jewels, and she went after her lovers and forgot me, saith the Lord." Therefore, behold, I will allure her and bring her into the wilderness and speak comfortably on to her. And I will give her 
her vineyards from thence, and the valley of Achor, which means trouble, for a door of hope. And she shall sing there as in the days of her youth, and as in the day when she came out of the land of Egypt. And it shall be at that day, saith the Lord, that thou shalt call me Ishai, and shalt call me no more Balai. Balai. For I will take away the names of Balaam out of her mouth, and they shall no more be remembered by their name. And in that day will I make a covenant for them with the beasts of the field, and with the fowls of heaven, and with the creeping things of the ground, and I will break the bow and the sword and the battle out of the earth, and will make them to lie down safely. And I will betroth thee unto me forever, yea, I will betroth thee unto me in righteousness, and in judgment, and in loving kindness, and in mercies. I will even betroth thee unto me in faithfulness, and thou shalt know the Lord. And it shall come to pass in that day, I will hear, saith the Lord. I will hear the heavens, and they shall hear the earth. And the earth shall hear the corn, and the wine, and the oil. And they shall hear Jezreel, which means it shall be sown of God. And I will sow her unto me in the earth. And I will have mercy upon her that had not obtained mercy. And I will say to them which were not my people, Thou art my people. And they shall say, Thou art my God. Now we'll just read the small chapter, chapter Hosea chapter 3, only five verses. Then said the Lord unto me, Go, yet... Love a woman beloved of her friend, yet an adulteress, according to the love of the Lord toward the children of Israel who took other gods and loved flagons of wine. So I bought her to me for fifteen pieces of silver and for a homer of barley and a half homer of barley. And I said unto her, Thou shalt abide for me many days. Thou shalt not play the harlot, and thou shalt not be for another man. So will I also be for thee. For the children of Israel shall abide many days without a king, and without a prince, and without a sacrifice, and without an image, and without an ephod, and without a teraphim. Afterward shall the children of Israel return and seek the Lord their God, and David their king, and shall fear the Lord and his goodness in the latter days. I'm just going to have a little brief drink of water after continual reading like that. I pray that the Holy Spirit will speak what he is seeking to say to the body of Christ through this chapter. We see in this chapter that Israel became apostate. She became adulterous as a nation. And that was even though she continued to offer burnt offerings and sacrifices and to go through the solemn feasts and the religious rituals and so on and so forth. But even though she delighted to come and seek God, as it says in another verse in the prophets, her heart was far from the Lord and even says that they delighted in seeking God, but their heart was far from him. Isn't that amazing? That people can even delight in seeking God, and yet in their heart as individuals and corporately as a body of believers or a nation have a principle that is working within them, that is corrupt and destructive, that is a principle at enmity with God, that is the spirit of adultery. And so Hosea was commanded to do things, no doubt a man that 
knew the blessing of purity, of a heart that was totally pure with God. There is such wholeness that comes out of holiness, which is purity. If you look up the word holiness in the, New, in the Old Testament vines, you will discover, and in other books, that it has a far deeper meaning than being separated. The understanding of separation is more emphasized in the New Testament meaning of holiness. But the deeper meaning of that word is purity, a purity that results in separation from impurity. And Hosea, no doubt, knew such a relationship of intimacy with God because he came into such purity with God that releases intimacy, that releases wholeness. And it is out of wholeness that beauty shines forth. And so when one comes into such a relationship with God, they sense a completeness in their being. It is a completeness that is very satisfying. It is the very presence of God. It is the sense of ultimate reality that satisfies and only can satisfy the inner core of any human being. For God created us in his image and created all things for his pleasure and therefore destiny and fulfillment is found in relationship with God out of purity. It says in the word of God, without holiness, no man shall see the Lord. It says, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. What causes a people to go rather than in the direction of people like Hosea? in the other direction. No doubt it was a very abhorrent thing for Hosea to have to take onto himself someone that was defiled and impure and had a heart that was adulterous. It is very similar to what happened to Ezekiel. God commanded him to eat what was unclean, human dung. And Ezekiel pleaded, oh God, can you at least let it be cow dung? Because he was being used to stand in the gap for the nation. It was, as it were, the similar principle of atonement that is ultimately manifested in the atoning work of God himself in the full expression of himself, that is, in his Son, upon the cross. And no doubt, this similar principle of standing in the gap as it's called by some verses here and there that you will discover. God sought for a man to stand in the gap and he found none. And so his own arm brought salvation and that was through Jesus Christ who is the government of God in the time and space realm and in particular in this earth who came the one and only full expression of God, Jesus Christ. As Hebrews says, Jesus Christ is the full expression of the Father. The word son means expression. He came into this world and humbled himself more than you, a mere creature, and suffered more than you, a mere creature. Consider that deeply so that you could repent and be reconciled to God. And so here we have Hosea standing in the gap by taking upon himself a woman that is defiled. It would seem like by doing this, Hosea is literally losing that inner satisfaction of reality and intimacy with God. The same thing happened to Christ. Yes, God's judgment fell upon himself in the expression of himself into this world and his only son. God's judgment fell upon Jesus Christ. 
and he experienced the oppression and the darkness and that presence didn't seem to be there but you know something through it all jesus christ was still god the union with the father was not broken for he still trusted in the father even when he cried out and said my god my god why hast thou forsaken me it was more a release of burden because of the pressure but he never became rebellious towards the Father. He never shook his fist at the Father. He continued to trust the Father while he was absorbing the judgment of sin. His spirit was in a state of total selfless trust in the Father. That's why he said, into thy hands I commend my spirit, saying that to the Father. The word of God says, though he slay me, yet will I trust him. And it's repeated more than once in the scripture. I believe, I'm not certain of this, but I think it's by Job and by Jeremiah. And certainly, though Christ experienced and tasted death for every man and for all creation, absorbed judgment, for he only could be a perfect atoning sacrifice, for only God could possibly live a sinless life in the face of temptation. And so we're, as it were, out of his obedience, as it says he was tempted in all points as we are, and yet without sin, he, as it were, took Adam, and carried him out of his obedience and nailed him on the cross, the first man, Adam, so that we could receive reconciliation to God by repenting of our sin and asking for his mercy and forgiveness. Why am I sharing all this in the context of this passage? Part of the reason is because I want to point point out what God's plan and his plan is and his purpose in bringing us forth to be those that also can be like Hosea and stand in the gap. Paul the apostle said, death works in us that life might work in you. And sometimes when we have close relationships with a brother and sister, and I've noticed this, one will be under spiritual attack while the other is experiencing spiritual blessing. So may the one that is experiencing the life recognize that that life is working in them through the other one taking the attack. And sometimes it works, and then it works the other way. But in it all, even when it seems God has forsaken us through a trial, we do not lose faith like Christ. Our spirit stays in a state of purity because it is in a state of selfless trust where no rebellion forms, but there is total trust even in the absorbing of judgment on the behalf of others or warfare and attack on the behalf of others. We learn to be rooted and grounded by faith that is transcendent over the feelings. If God always gave us the satisfaction of his feeling here, there would not be the exercise of our spirit and faith to trust him that would cause an enlargement onto a greater comprehension and blessing of the presence of God in our inner being. But in this passage here, we have a picture of the spirit of adultery that God is working in his plan to undo in those that even have fallen into this state. It is the same principle as the prodigal son who came to his senses, but it took the undoing of his own deceptions, the exposing of his own deceptions, seeing the results of his own choices of independence from God to bring him to the place where he came through and saw the ugliness of what was in him as it were a filthy garment that he cast off with a deep cry unto God for mercy and saying, I recognize now how deceived I was. 
and I return to my father. Sometimes people can have an initial experience of conversion, but not enter in to a relationship through seeking God where they know such a union and purity with God that they conquer the principle of the old nature, which includes this principle of adultery. What is this principle of adultery? It is basically an independence from God. Through temptation. The difference between the independence of Satan and the fallen angels and the independence of us as human beings in our deceptions is that those beings, including Lucifer, went against the direct presence of God's blessing when they had no temptation. This is equivalent to going directly against the spirit of God in defiance which is considered and defined as blasphemy against the Holy Spirit when you speak out and you make choices of independence that way. And the root of this, how did this happen with Lucifer? It was basically a choice to not fear God. Fearing God is a choice to recognize God for who he truly is, not just with the intellect, but far more with the heart. It is a deep turning in the heart that recognizes God as ultimately trustworthy out of perceiving his being as irreproachable, as a love that has such integrity and purity that it is a blazing fire of judgment against the slightest that would be contrary to his love. And briefly, love is always that quality that is choosing the highest lasting good over any more immediate choices that would be less than the lasting good, highest lasting good. It is chosen out of total free volition in God. And I'm not going into... Or be to be distracted, I'm just giving a rough sketch here to define the being of God and relationship with God and to understand this principle of adultery, of independence. This principle of adultery, of independence, happens as it did with Eve, the moment she bought into that doubt. She did no longer perceive God as ultimately trustworthy. She lost the fear of God, which is the choice of recognizing this integrity of God's love, that it is totally trustworthy, no corruption, is able to contain unlimited life and unlimited power without being corrupted thereby, and is evidently also as such, the very source of all life and power. For it is love, only such love, that can contain unlimited life and power without corruption. And as such, this is the containment of ultimate goodness. So when there's a deep turning in the heart that recognizes the holiness of God in a way that causes us to be in utter awe of him and sees the ultimate goodness behind that, as a result, that God is fully trustworthy. And of course, that is the foundation from which God's love is expressed in creativity that is ever enlarging and ever increasing and yet without corruption. And this was ultimately expressed in God's plan to have a corporate bride which was totally focused in the perfect atoning sacrifice of Jesus Christ. It was out of that foundation of the holiness of God that such creativity could come forth. This also came 
out of the fear of God in the relationship of God himself in triunity. There's one God, but God governs in three ultimate dimensions of government. He governs as one that is the originator and sees the end from the beginning. This is beyond the time and space realm. So to be governing there, he has to be in personage there. If he isn't in personage, then he isn't conscious. He wouldn't be God. Obviously, there's personage then as the father, which means originator beyond time and space. To govern within his creation, the time and space realm, he also must be in that realm, communicating with his creation, not as some vague life force, but as ultimate personage. And so in personage, he is the son. The son means expression. That is the expression of the father, the originator, into time and space. And then there is the Holy Spirit of God that can be omnipresent in the father and the son, all places at all times in creativity and personage. I'm not here to get into that, but here's what I want to point out. That there is, as it says in Isaiah 33, 5 and 6, the Messiah, the fear of the Lord is his treasure, it says. The Messiah sees the Father, and I've often shared this, but he's appreciating the Father in the purity of his love and the, and the wholeness that comes out of that purity and the beauty that comes out of that purity and the creativity that comes out of that purity and such beauty and glory. And so the Son is reciprocating out of the recognizing the Father. In other words, he is reverencing the Father. He is fearing the Father. This is not a negative fear. This is a thing that is reverence. It's, it's a reciprocation of reverence, of, of more than reverence even. And so he says to the Father, Father, I'm feeling such thankfulness and love as I see your beauty and your glory that I want to express love back to you. And I want to do it by condescending and even suffering death on the cross so that you can, so I can bring to you a corporate bride to show my love to you, Father. And the Father says to the Son, Son, I love you so much that I want you. I'm willing to let you go and, and, and do this, even though it's painful for me, so painful. I'm willing to let you go and do that so that you can inherit a corporate bride and know the blessing of that in union with me. Only one God. This is God in his relationship, which is the opposite of the spirit of adultery. And that's what I'm doing here is contrasting this. In the principle of adultery, there is rather than an appreciation of the holiness of God, rather than choosing to fear God, recognize the, the holiness of God and appreciate it and reverence it and be in awe of it, what does it do when you see how great and powerful God is and that that power is contained in such an integrity of love, of purity of love? It makes you just want to be on your face in utter awe and be still and know that he is God. It brings you to the place of utter humility. And out of that humility, there's also, it brings you to the place of utter honesty. And then <clears throat> even that, Honesty drives you to the place of greater humility. And so there is this reciprocation of worship that comes out of great humility. And out of that comes the rising of this creativity or expression of love that originates out of the fear of God. Because out of the, how does it originate out of the fear of God? Because in the recognition of God and his holiness, there is also the recognition out of that foundation of holiness of the mercy of God or the fact that God can be fully creative, fully expressive in his love to the point that his moral perfection of love is so great that he has the capacity to be a perfect atoning sacrifice in which they recognized even before he came on the cross, came into this world, and which now has happened. And so Paul, John the Apostle says again, 
I write an old commandment on you, but again a new commandment. And that old commandment is that we are to fear God and recognize the greatness of his mercy. And it is when we really know the Father that we're drawn unto the Son, for Christ said, Whoever has been taught and learned of the Father comes to the Son. And so there's the revelation of the mercy of God, the grace of God, which reveals the greatness of his love. And this brings forth the result of a continual growth of abiding as we seek God, as we do not allow the thirst of for, for this relationship with God to be quenched by the temporal things of this world. Spirit of adultery happens when that initial conversion, if there has been one, is not allowed to continue. It says in the word of God, as you have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk ye in him. As you have received him. And that is how we receive Christ, when we recognize God for who he is in, in reality. When we face reality, when we face the I am that I am with our heart. In Hebrew, I am that I am is ahilya asher ahilya. When we face ahilya asher ahilya, the ultimate reality. Reality is defined in the dictionary as that which is immovable, unchangeable, and everlasting. The only thing that is, is a quality that has no corruption in it. And the only thing that can be a quality that has no corruption in it is this love that is a blazing fire of judgment against all the slightest impurity against love. And yet, can assure destiny to creation out of that foundation by assuring mercy through God himself being a perfect atoning sacrifice. I'm not going to get into all the details in the scriptures that support this in the Old Testament. This is the relationship that is deadened if we do not have a life of prayer and we allow our initial conversion to not be fed and allow the things of this world to creep in so that we, we go in a direction of independence. The word of God says, Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. For if any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in them, in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. And what quenches our thirst for God is when we get our focus upon our own immediate concerns for fulfillment in the temporal things of this life so that we do not put first the kingdom of God. Those that initially receive Christ and have conversion will grow into greater and greater intimacy of God if they choose to continue to abide in him by seeking him, by having that desire to grow in him. But many conversions are shallow, like the seed that Christ described in Matthew, so that there hasn't even been a deep conversion. A deep conversion results in a belief that is from the heart. In fact, the word belief in the New Testament is pistis, which means moral persuasion. And the belief in the Old Testament is similar, has the understanding of recognizing what is ultimately trustworthy and expressing trust in such a way that it is immovable. It's compared to a root that is broken off, but it can't be moved even when it's broken off because it's so deep. In the recognition of this wonderful creator and who he is, there's such a fear of God, a recognition of the ultimate negative and positive, positive of the universe, as it were, which brings the flow of eternal life, similar to electricity and illustration, the negative foundation of holiness, the positive 
Out of it comes the expression of mercy, forming the ultimate positive, which is the love of God revealed in his mercy. And in this chapter here, there's this principle of adultery that causes a wandering away, that causes the spins of things in our life to become so strong that the old nature, which is like a black hole in outer space, it can never be satisfied. It is always grasping to fill a void that only God's Spirit can satisfy. But it's grasping after things out of deception that it justifies. And the more it grasps with choices that are wrong choices, the more the consequences of those choices come back in greater judgment, in greater emptiness, in greater desperation, in greater helplessness. Until like the prodigal son, one if comes to their senses unless they become so hardened that they choose to serve the devil and are destroyed or, and, and are lose their soul in a place of eternal torment. I will just briefly comment here that yesterday a friend gave me a YouTube video, which was mainly pictures and audio, but the pictures were amazing. And it was the Count of John, uh, of, I forget the last, first name, but it's Bunyan that wrote Pilgrim's Progress. Apparently they found, according to my friend, other writings of him, and they found a writing that describes his conversion and also how he almost killed himself and committed suicide. And at that point he was, God intervened and he was converted and he has this trip where an angel takes him to heaven and then shows him hell. And I tell you, on this video, if you can find it there on the internet, I put it on my site and life after death videos. It's quite a long, it's over an hour. So that's the way you can find it on my site under videos at loverealized.com. But there was such vivid, real pictures that were put in this thing. It was incredible. I've never seen such a work of art. Uh, that showed what hell was like and that showed what heaven was like. Just amazing. But the account was so moving on the torment that was in hell that it was hard for me. I had to really fight it off for some time because it was so horrifying. What this, uh, I believe it was John Bunyan, was showed, uh, he was showing the utter horror and torment in hell. Well, I'm not going to go into that now or I'd get way off on topic on answering the hard questions about that. But what I want to share here is this. Is this principle of adultery is in the church when the church becomes occupied with mere activity, spiritual activity like the church of Ephesus. I don't have time in this message to go into the illustration that I like to use in Ephesus in relation to the fact that the harbor that was once deep and rich became shallow because they neglected the trees and cut them down on the hill so that now it's seven miles away from Ephesus. But at that time, it was a deep, rich harbor. But when we neglect to break up the fallow ground and plant new seeds in our heart, the same shallowness comes. And we don't have the fear of God. There's a shallowness and an emptiness. There's no depth. And so there's all these things that are so trivial that enter into the church where people want to have joy. But they don't realize the real and deep joy comes out of deep reverence and humility and awe. It comes out of the circumcision of the heart. Any joy that is emphasized without an understanding of true repentance, of true humility, of the genuine fear of God is a deception and will result in a conception of God that is a God whose love does not have integrity to judge sin, which evolves into the teachings such as universalism that eventually believes the devil and everyone will be saved. And so you have 
a false and a counterfeit unity that embraces all religions, which is what is happening now. And I won't go into it, but we see all kinds of situations where people are condoning evil in the name of so-called love. It is not genuine love. This is also the principle of adultery. In churches, people's hearts are hard because they justify the gods of amusement and hardly pray. They spend all kinds of hours watching the hockey game, putting up big screens in the church to watch the games. These are idols. They are the idols of idleness and of amusement and of pleasure. It says in Ezekiel that the sin of Sodom was idleness, pride, and abundance of bread. If we had delighted in God and knew the depth of his presence, we wouldn't want anything to do with stuff that's so shallow. It doesn't satisfy. It's empty. It's shallow. And to think that you think you're going to bring people to Christ by showing how shallow you are. I will tell you that there will not be a strong presence of the Holy Spirit where the body of Christ is occupied with the pleasures of this world and refuses to repent and justifies these idols of adultery. Am I saying it's wrong to watch sports? No, there is liberty in Christ. What I'm saying is wrong is when these things become the main focus in people's lives and what they're fully occupied with. And so as the electrons spin around the nucleus of an atom, so their lives are spinning with a hard shell that is formed by these electrons that is like the hard, forming a hard shell in the heart. It becomes insular and resistant to the truth and will go through the rituals like the nation of Israel and justify the emptiness. And they can bring in converts, but are they really those that have had a genuine belief that is a moral persuasion from the heart out of the fear of God? Or is it just an intellectual scent to find identity and comfort in a group? In this passage of scripture, I could go on. I need to close soon. I've been talking for some time. And I want to just share a little bit on the scripture itself here. This is describing what will happen to the nation of Israel. That they will go through a period of time where they will go into captivity and they will not be able to do their sacrifices and their religious rituals which they practiced without a relationship with God that they lost. And of course, I already read that in Hosea chapter 3. That prophecy is clearly a very accurate prophecy of what has happened. For it says in Hosea 3.3, And I said unto her, Thou shalt abide for me many days. Thou shalt not play the harlot. Thou shalt not be for another man. So will I also be for thee. For the children of Israel shall abide many days without a king and without a prince and without a sacrifice. And they're still not doing their sacrifices. And without an image and without an ephod and without a teraphim. But afterwards shall the children of Israel return and seek the Lord their God and David their king. And shall fear the Lord and his goodness in the latter days. Do you see that what will happen in the last days that will change Israel is they will come to fear God. And his goodness is contained out of perceived. They will fear not only God, but his goodness. Because when you choose to recognize God for who he is, which is what the fear of God is, basically. It is a deep turning in the heart out of such a choice to recognize God and the beauty of his holiness, the glory of his holiness and of the goodness that is contained within his holiness. So they fear his goodness because his goodness is contained in his holiness and in his holiness is also contained the manifestation of his mercy ultimately revealed in Jesus Christ whom it says in Zechariah 12, and they shall look on me whom they have pierced. That is God speaking when it says they shall look on 
me whom they have pierced. And then they will mourn for him. And when there is a deep conversion, there is a deep circumcision in the heart. Like the publican that beat his breast and said, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. The evidence of that which is truly justified before God is the genuine circumcision of the heart out of the recognition of the greatness of one's need of the mercy of God. And therein is there the recognition of the great love of God that causes faith to respond in the recognition of what is ultimately trustworthy for only in a love that has the foundation of total purity and out of that foundation of total power to assure destiny, to assure forgiveness and mercy, is there the genuine fear of God. In this passage of Scripture, God is calling his people today as the body of Christ to be those that no longer allow hardness of heart in the meetings. How will that happen in the typical church? How will the typical church be changed into a beachhead for God's presence that can conquer their community, their city, their nation? when we repent of our love for the world rather than for God. Your prayer meetings, hardly anyone comes to them. Or even if they do come to them, why don't you just make the church service a prayer meeting? Leadership, get on your knees before God and humble yourself. Learn to be in utter awe of who he is. To be prostrate before him. Until your heart breaks and softens under, un, uh, out of the awareness of who he is in your midst. Until there's a deep cry from the heart. And out of that great humility and awe of God and his glory and his majesty will come great expressions of love creativity of love and the spirit of prophecy and great liberty and great joy that isn't counterfeit, that isn't counterfeit revival, that is genuine, that is real. Counterfeit revival tends to be that where people conform more to one another and leadership than they do in their relationship to God. How does that happen? Let's say a church emphasizes, oh, you need to experience laughter. If you don't experience laughter, you're not very spiritual. Another church may emphasize some other thing, or some other truth. And so everyone can violate their integrity and try to be like others, or even want to experience what others experience over over and ignore the integrity of their relationship with God, which is out of the fear of God. And so they conform to one another so that they're not speaking the truth and love to one another. Thus, they become like a bunch of bricks that all look the same. They become homogenous rather than maintaining their uniqueness because they're putting their identity more in their leader and in one another than in their relationship with God. Genuine revival means that there is total uniqueness and expression in the body as well as in who people are to one another. They speak the truth in love and they are who they are. And there is liberty to be who they are without being controlled. Nor do they desire identity that is prominent in one another or in the leadership. Rather, it's the other way. They have such a fear of God that their identity is totally in God. So that they are real to one another in their relationships. So that there's genuine unity. And that is what God is wanting in these last days. He's wanting to corner Israel to the place and us to the place where we recognize 
our utter need of him, where we see the futility of our own ways of control in the meetings. We're afraid to let people share in the meetings without them having to ask permission or whatever. There's a strong spirit of control, but Paul the Apostle said that God has given more abundant honor onto the part that lacked that there should be no schism in the body of Christ. And that can only happen when control is broken. Then what happens is God can give a greater gift that can be expressed in the meeting through someone that may not be very attractive to us in the natural, and that will humble the ones that are looked up to so that people no longer have a denominational and divisive spirit which comes out of conformity in relationship to one another over their relationship with God. This adulterous spirit of conformity and of control that is there because of the lack of the fear of God and is there, and the reason there's the lack of the fear of God is because of this spirit of adultery that has caused a hardness out of due, due to the loves for the world that are justified, including the loves of the world to put security in one another more than in one's relationship with God, with all kinds of socials or whatever form it comes in. So God is calling his people to repent of being denominational, being divisive, limiting God so that he cannot move through the members of the body in the meeting, failing to fear God, failing to repent of the modern idols of amusement and of pleasure and of abundance of bread, which was in Sodom. When the church enters in to such a relationship with God, they will begin to have a burden and a thirst to see their communities around reached they will also bring down his presence because they will come into a unity with much prayer so that we are built together as living stones as an habitation of God through the Spirit. And when the fullness of God's presence comes down, believe me, I could share here for a long time about powerful revivals in different parts of the world, which you can watch on the videos called Transformation 1, Transformation 2, and I think there's others now. Very powerful, well-done documentaries. Can't share about it now. God bless all of you that have heard this message. I could have shared a lot more. There was notes I took from Jeremiah explaining also in Jeremiah what would happen in the last days to the children of Israel. Again, this is Jeremiah 31, 31 to 34. Maybe in closing, I'll just briefly mention it. It says there, Behold, the days come, saith the Lord, that I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day that I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, which covenant they break, although I was an husband unto them, saith the Lord. But this shall be the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, saith the Lord, I will put my law on their inward parts and I will write it in their hearts and will be their God and they shall be my people. And they shall teach no more every man his neighbor and every man his brother saying, No, Lord, for they shall all know me from the least of them unto the greatest of them, saith the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. <clears throat> This is the new covenant that God will make in the last days with the children of Israel. And it also says in the latter days that the children of Israel, as I read in Hosea 3, will fear God. And it is out of the fear of God that there is a birthing of a heart that is soft before God. So that God can begin to cause his word to be written in their hearts as is described in Isaiah 28 concerning precept upon precept, line upon line, it is in relation to a child that is learned. Word, we have learned to be like a child that sucks from his mother's breaths, which is also described in Psalm 131 where King David said, I have not been proud, but I've been 
humble. I'm just ad-libbing. It's not exactly that way, but in essence, I've been like a child sucking from his mother's breast. And when we humble ourselves out of the fear of God, we can take the word of God into us in a way that does not become that which is our undoing and our hypocrisy so that we are snared and taken as it describes in Isaiah 28. There is, there is also in this wonderful chapter of Hosea chapter 2, the covenant described about that will happen in the last days. And it says in verse 18, that in that day I will make a covenant for them with the beasts of the field and with the fowls of heaven and with the creeping things of the ground, and I will break the bow and the sword and the battle out of the earth. And it goes on and it talks about this further in verse 21. And it says, And it shall come to pass in that day I will hear, saith the Lord, I will hear the heavens, and they shall hear the earth. And the earth shall hear the corn and the wine and the oil, and they shall hear Jezreel, which means it will be sown of God. And I will soar unto me in the earth, and I will also have mercy upon her that have not obtained mercy, and will say to them which were not my people, Thou art my people, and they shall say, Thou art my God. This is speaking also of this new covenant, which involves that which is sown of God. What is sown of God is that that which happens when we cease from our own works, our own self-initiations out of the deception of our own heart cause us to form a distorted image of God, either as, as I previously described, that justifies immorality and embraces a false unity, or is dictatorial like Cain perceived God, so that we think we are justified by our own sacrifices before God because we've lost sight of the goodness of God that is behind the holiness of God because we have taken offense at the consequences of God's holiness. We become afraid of God and not recognize the mercy of God as King David became afraid of God when he, when Ahaz was smitten. I believe, no, I, I don't think I got the guy's name right. It wasn't, it, but it's a similar name. The priest was smitten carrying the ark. But we need to recognize the goodness of God. And it's when we recognize the mercy of God out of his holiness. And we're not offended. But we give thanks, as the word of God says, at the remembrance of his holiness. That there's release. Many of us don't even realize we're carrying all kinds of offense in our heart towards God. Because we're perceiving God as an enigma like Cain. We're, we're, our heart is hard. Either he's dictatorial and we don't perceive his goodness, or he's like a big Santa Claus. And we are deceived into a false conception of grace that justifies sin. When the word of God says, without holiness, no man shall see the Lord. John Bunyan and many others that have died and were shown hell saw pastors in hell because they held on forgiveness in their heart or they were living fully unto themselves and not really seeking to serve God, but totally seeking their own interests. May we be those that are ready for his coming. Do you realize that when it talks about hearing the corn and the wine and the oil here, that what it is saying is that the presence of God is so exuding from God's people because he is actually sown into their hearts so that they're not filled with their self-initiation, which speaks of idolatry, but they have entered the Sabbath, which means cessation of rest, which means that it is God that is now sown in them and working through them. They have let go of self and have let God have his way in their life. We are to give diligence to labor to enter the rest for there is a rest for the people of God, and he that has entered that rest has ceased from his own works as God did from his. May we be those that work out our salvation with fear and trembling, that allows God to work in us both to will and to do of his good pleasure, so that we enter a place where we're not in a panic to try to fulfill our lives with the temporal things of this world, but we can pay the price to let go of those things and trust God to meet our needs and put his kingdom first. 
then there will be the overflowing of God's presence. There will be an aroma that will go throughout creation and God will, and that will cause even the stars to pick up the vibrations and God will hear, it says, the heavens, the stars, picking up the vibrations from the earth of God's presence upon the earth. Do you know that there is a town in South America where there was a powerful revival. You can watch it on the transformation videos. This town was filled with jails, 25 something, I believe. Drunkenness, but there were people that were fasting and praying and seeking God every week. And a lady that the whole town knew that was so crippled and suffering was totally healed. And when the whole town began to hear and take rumor of this, they all came to the meetings and multitudes of them were saved. Because these people were in such a relationship with God. To the point that now there's only one jail in the town. And the whole town is basically converted. And you can see the video on my site at ultimatemeaning.com. I think it's the last one on the slider. Part of it. Or get the transformation videos. And So we see that in this town what happened is all the vegetables started growing to enormous sizes and so that people and government officials around the world are trying to figure out why are all of their vegetables and their fruits and everything growing so enormous and big. And you can watch on, maybe even on the one on my site, the size of these vegetables. Well, that is what God's doing. And eventually, his presence will fill all the earth so that the lion lies down with the lamb because the whole world will have been conquered by the liberation of those in Christ who are the sons of God, who are his corporate bride. I wish I could talk longer, but God bless you. We'll talk again, or, I'll, or you'll hear me again. God bless you. Thank you for listening to this message.